We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Carmen Acevedo Butcher, PhD, is an author, teacher, poet, and award-winning translator of spiritual texts. Her dynamic work around the evolution of language and the necessity of just and inclusive language has garnered interest from various media, including the BBC and NPR's Morning Edition. A Carnegie Foundation Professor of the Year and Fulbright Senior Lecturer, Acevedo Butcher teaches at the University of California, Berkeley, in the college writing programs. She is perhaps best known in the contemplative world for her luminous and accessible translation of The Cloud of Unknowing with the Book of Privy Council. Other works of hers include Hildegard of Bingen, A Spiritual Reader, A Little Daily Wisdom, 365 Readings with Women Mystics, and Man of Blessing, A Life of St. Benedict. Her newest book, Practice of the Presence, a Revolutionary Translation is a new version of Brother Lawrence's classic. It will be published in August 2022. Carmen, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. It's so good to be here. So to, to get our conversation, uh, we'd like to just invite you to tell us a little bit about your relationship with silence. When I think about my relationship with silence, the first thing that comes to mind is I've always had a special relationship with trees. They feel like the keepers of silence. Mary Oliver says how she would walk out into the woods and the woods and nature saved her. As a kid, I talked with trees and hugged trees and sat under trees and read books. And I often think about how trees silently talk with each other, as we know scientifically now, but you can just feel it too. And I knew that as a kid when I went out into the woods that I was entering a community, a kind community, and I, I could feel that it welcomed me. So even when we were asked to rake leaves in the winter of the oak trees in our front yard, I was the kid who went out there and did it because the leaves smelled so good, the tannic acid of them, and the squirrels were leaping around, and I would find a box and put all the leaves in it and sit there and read. So to me, you have the suffing and the sowing, the rustling of the leaves. So to me, silence has always involved nature first and a sense of stillness. Barbara A. Holmes' Joy Unspeakable means a lot to me because she helped explain to me that my understanding of silence as not being without sound was valid because I never understood what people meant when they would say that silence was a state of being without sound. Barbara talks about 
how in dancing or in music, there is an ontological silence. So for the longest time, I felt that I was odd, <laughs> but well, and you know, perhaps I am, perhaps everyone is in a very beautifully uh, godlike way. But then I started discovering all these mystics who had similar feelings. And then I started finding chants that went along with it. Would it, would it be okay if I sang a chant that kind of sums up? Paulette Myers has this, you know, wonderful collection of Quaker chants. So for me, silence is a kind of stillness, whether with sound or without sound, because I, I don't really understand silence in a binary way. And the chant goes like this. It's a wonderful, simple, beautiful chant. Stillness deep, deep within us. From small beginnings it flows into the living waters. An ocean of God, through our stillness God moves. And I like to read poets to understand silence. And Ilya Kaminsky wrote in February on the 28th, the war on Ukraine was about to start. He is a poet, I guess, I'm sure you all know in Atlanta. I've just learned that he's at Georgia Tech. He says, being deaf, people ask me about silence a lot. This is a tweet. And now we are all watching, yes, in silence, a 30 mile long convoy heading to kill civilians, that kind of silence. So let me say it once again in real time. Deaf do not believe in silence. It is the creation of the hearing. So for me, I think of Charles Long that Barbara A. Holmes also quotes that silence is a way of being. To me, whether there's sound or not is to some extent irrelevant that I often find silence in song. I find silence in traffic. You know, you think of Thomas Merton standing on the street corner and that loud in uh, Kentucky and all the car sounds. So to me, a silence is the ground of our being and the sacredness that holds us all together. And it's what I'm always trying to come back home to when my spirit gets frazzled. I'm, I'm like, where's my silence? Where is our silence? So I thought really the true answer to that question would be, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what my relationship to silence is, but I really appreciate trying to listen to it and ask the question. So thank you for that. Yeah. So, okay. That was great. We can wrap it up. I'm going to just stop it right here. And that was lovely. So thanks for coming to Encountering Silence, everybody. That, that was an unbelievable answer. I, I mean, just, really? yeah, I mean, 
you had everything in the world in there, and and oh, I don't even know where to begin. I, I think I want to say um, the interesting insight, and you had about 15 in there, and I kept writing them all down, but that, that powerful moment there of that tweet of <laughs> silence is an invention of the hearing, I don't know what that means, and I totally know what that means. And I'd like us to explore that a little bit. If you do, you, do you have more to say on that? Because I feel like a whole bunch of stuff that we that you just said kind of circles in that area. Especially, it seems to get to the crux of the two main topics of silence in our podcast. Of somehow a very deeply positive sense of silence, and at the same time, how silence can then be used as such a negative crushing, destroying silence. And both of them are right there in that quote, that there's this, somehow there's this lovely aspect and this terrifying aspect. And as I'm just curious, I, I don't know if this is for, for Carmen or for all of us, or if that's just kind of a, a general comment of there's something really uniquely pithy and 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 correct about that comment so i really appreciate you sharing it and if there's anything else to be added i'd like to hear it from any of us i'm glad you bring it up kevin that's a really perceptive set of comments i think the reason that i have sat with Ilya kaminsky's tweet and even then went out and bought his book of poetry is because you sum it up really well. There's the silence that heals and the silence that destroys, really. And I discovered the silence that heals from within the silence that destroys. Mm. And this is something that, I'm 61, this is something that has taken me my entire life to really even begin to understand. I grew up with childhood trauma and violence. And even though I tried to get help for myself, for my family, I was unable to. So I would, my father was violent and I would go to um, pastors and they would say, your mother needs to be more submissive. And my mother is a very, very deeply spiritual woman, very genuinely contemplative, really. And in my own home, this is one reason that I love Mary Oliver so much, being able to speak my truth or even breathe sometimes was uh, very difficult because this was a part of my life from the day I was born on. And in the middle of that, you know, Dr. James Finley, Jim says that there are times when God leaves us unprotected and at the same time sustains us through things. So in the middle of a being silenced, I found this, or it found me rather, really is what I, I mean to say, this wonderful silence found me.
from as long as I can remember. If I think of my earliest memories, it will be that there is the silence in every moment, in the leaf, on the tree, in the, <laughs> in the fact that I was thinking about this this morning because I thought I'm going to be on this podcast. Am I going to say this on this distinguished and really wonderful podcast? We rescued this cat named Tao, T-A-O. We're not saying it Tao, but he came as Tao. He looks more like a Tao than a Tao. And he had been on the street, so he came to us with parasites. And as I drove his fecal sample to the vet this morning, I was thinking, and the silence is in this little bag. And so I was able to experience, it was a true gift to sustain me because otherwise I would, would not have made it. And through my years of severe anxiety and depression, the silence was always there. Such a loving, welcoming, you've got this. And that is inexplicable. But I understand what you mean about the silence that is, is harming. And in fact, that's one of the, I went and looked this up because I, you know, grew up with um, undiagnosed dyslexia. So words move on the page. And one way that helps me have words to have weight to them and not move so much as to know their histories. And when I was looking up about all of these different words, one of the things that I noticed is that for um, silence, one of the definitions in the Oxford English Dictionary is to limit someone in a harmful way. We, we just, I think the main thing is, and I, I know you all live this way, but I think we have such a, we live in a system or a world of binary thinking. And you know, the way Richard Rohr says, we want to rewire our minds. So for us, silence is either one thing or another, when actually it's all of these things at once. It can be harmful, it can be healing. But I have so many students where I teach who feel silenced and who have been silenced. So I'm very, I'm very with you on that, Kevin, that there is a very dangerous silence also. I'm thinking right now about friend of the podcast and anchorite Maggie Ross and her work in yeah, just, you know, we're talking a lot about the tensions of silence, right? And acknowledging that the binaries don't work, but the ways in which um, it seems to me sometimes the ways in which both uh, toxic silence, negative silence and positive silence and everything in between can take us to this space of so such an unknown space, being unable to define or control or name that we're also moving to the silence because we can't handle uh, making sense of the words. We can't handle naming what's happening, right? Even, you know, the tweet the tweet you recited and then Kevin naming that again, we were, we were all kind of brought to a place of silence by saying, yes, I see it, I feel it. And, and you know, and, and as we must, we talk around it, within it, through it, but I think that's one of the 
the beauties and strange things. And, and I think perhaps maybe, Carmen, do you think that because of that, those moments where we talk around and through maybe some of the negative silences, toxic silences, and it brings us back to this space of maybe generative and creative silence, do you think that allows us to, to get to a place of action against the toxic silence? Do you think that silence can be prophetic and call forth our prophetic imagination to get back into the healing stage to, of what silence can do generatively and, and help those, those more toxic silence moments? And, and maybe you experience that with your students. Wow, Cassie, that is so well said and absolutely my experience too. It's a, a wise way of putting it because for me, walking in nature, which I do, or at least walking somewhere for about an hour every day, whether it's on campus or in the marsh nearest, is for me, a time of meditation in addition to whatever else I might do and has helped me over the years really let go of self-loathing and have self-compassion. And even though when I was in the worst of the stages of experiencing unkindness towards myself, I was trying very hard, you know, to love the world and to uh, be kind to others. But since over just really the last years, when I guess since about the time we came to California, I was able somehow with the silence to hear the self-compassion. And it was also different people who came into my life who helped me to see that. And that has in turn allowed me to see I'm just, you know, part of humanity my brokenness, my quirks, just as I am, just starting right here. And that has allowed me to have more patience with, sure, myself, but really importantly for me, uh, with others. So like when I'm teaching or, you know, work at work. And I definitely think the other thing that the silence does for me is rather than having the this or that mindset and the successful or not successful or this worked and this didn't work mindset new ways really do open up in the silence but i have to let go of thinking i know something i've got to truly re and it's very it actually is not a comfortable feeling, you know. I'm sure if I were further down the road, it's one of my one of my friends in Germany when I was 22. She was 79, and Sophie Bushbeck used to say, uh, "The road goes ever on." In German, because I told her, "You're so wise and mature," and she was like, "Oh, Carmen, the road goes ever on." So I guess if I were further down the road, perhaps it wouldn't feel uncomfortable still, or maybe it does. You know, maybe it's just a part of life. But I I definitely think being able to risk not knowing and not having my ego, my small ego in control, 
the, the part of you that's like, has a resume, you know, I mean, that's a fact of life, right? Resumes, but one doesn't really want to be defined by one's resume, not really. So I think that that's a very wise statement because, you know, Barbara A. Holmes in Joy Unspeakable and Brother Lawrence that Carl was mentioning in that very generous introduction, they, they both talk about having joy. And I really think one of my favorite forms of resistance to the world's mechanistic, binary love of money as the root of all evil is to turn to silence and to find the joy unspeakable there, the contentement en cible that Brother Lawrence says. And it reminds me because I, I have never felt like, like I've looked to other people as contemplatives, contemporary ones like you, know, you all or just others, um, Cynthia Bourgeau and others. And I've always you know, looked up to people who are contemplatives and never quite felt like one. I'm a composition teacher. And yet, thank you so much for asking such good questions because I looked up the word contemplative in preparing for this uh, conversation. And I found out something I never knew. I'm sure you all know, but if you don't mind, I'll just say it, that the con means with, and of course the temple part is temple, but the thing I didn't know is that it's one of two things possibly, the OED says, so they, they usually are pretty much in the field of probably so. One is that the Tim part means to cut or to right to make a space for and the other is that it possibly means to stretch like in tenere, like tenderness or tension or attention or intention but anyway it means to stretch to make i'm, I'm sure y'all know this but like i i'm just having to tell you because i'm so fascinated that i did not know this to stretch the string to make out the space for the temple so that contemplate means to make the space to observe something and to me it seems to contemplate it, everyone's a mystic then, right? I mean, we don't have a few mystics we look up to. We don't have a few contemplatives. It's just, it's just who we are. So I just think the more we can accept that and enjoy it and the more joy we can have and more conversations like this one, the better off all of us can be and all of the margins too. So we can make the table bigger. You know, I don't believe in the scarcity mindset. So thank you for asking that. So, so I'll be thinking about that question, Cassidy, for a long time. The word binary keeps showing up. And um, I really want to talk to you about your use of pronouns in the new book. But I want to get to that. I, I feel like there's some ground we need to cover before we get to that. So that's just a little teaser. But maybe we can start. Indulge me as I be a little bit of a fanboy, but I adore your translation of the cloud. It is, it is my go-to translation. I compare all other translations to yours. Um, I, and I love the scholarship that you brought to it, your, your carefulness in terms of uh, whenever you did a translation that you thought might be controversial, how carefully you explained your reasoning and your notes, just, it was just a home run as far as I was concerned. So it's just a delight to be able to tell you that. 
but I also, you know, I, I also am familiar with your book on Hildegard. Um, you're, you know, you wrote a bio of, of St. Benedict, and now you're, um, you've, you've entered into the Carmelite world with Brother Lawrence. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that, that discovering the mystics for you was something of a homecoming. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what you said. But I'm curious, how did you decide which of the mystics you wanted to go steady with? You know, which of the mystics you really wanted to dig into their work and either write about them, as in Benedict's case, or, or really get into their words and to bring their words to a 21st century English-speaking audience. So, um, so if you could just reflect on that a little, I'd be happy. Thank you, Carl. That really means a lot, your many kind words, more than I can say. So thank you. I hope it's not too disappointing, but I never had a grand plan. It's one reason I like Brother Lawrence because he um, he talks a lot about stumbling and the fact, of course, that um, that means even more with him because he was a disabled veteran and he did limp. But the fact that he brings attention to how he stumbled through, I really did stumble through who I was going to translate. I really made it up as I went along. And I started with Alfred of Innisham and the and the way that happened will sum up everything. So if I can just tell that brief story, I was in graduate school and it was time to do a master's thesis. And I never did understand, and I know Casty, you've just done another degree and I know all of y'all doing different things degree-wise, but I, I never did understand academic inquiry. And I don't say that to say that all academic inquiry isn't important. I'm just saying I didn't understand it. So when I was told I was supposed to make a, you know, sort of unique contribution as a, even as a master's degree student, I was like, I don't have any, that didn't feed my soul. I was really needing something that fed my soul. So I couldn't think of a new reading of Moby Dick or, you know, something like that. I, I just really, I didn't really feel too bad about it. I just felt frustrated. It didn't make me feel less than, but it was frustrating because it was, I didn't want to get the degree, you know. And one day I was in this professor's office and I had taken Old English with him. And we had studied, we had translated Beowulf. So I cut my teeth on Beowulf and I loved. So we'd have passages like when Grendel comes off the moor and he's, you know, looking for a snack, which unfortunately is going to be one of Hrothgar's men. And the language went like this, Thakom of moor under mist leotham grendel gongan goddess irreber, munta se manchata manakuna sumne besiron in sela tham hand, wood under woknum to testahe wind wretched, gold se lagumina yaros wisse, fatum fane, rada after thorn on fagna floor, feon trado da eo de ichremod, him of iam stod, lie likost. Leost unfire. So I was gone, you know, and I learned some songs in Old English. I mean, I learned, well, some songs and then I made up some tunes to them. It really fed my soul. So I was in this professor's office and he was like, how's it going? I'm like, fine, but I just can't think of a thesis. And so he was pulling books off his shelf just kind of randomly. 
the way life works. And he reached up to this far shell, away shelf, really high up. You know, the shelf where all the really ultra nerdy stuff was. And he pulled this tome down and he said, well, there's Alfrich of Innisham and there's a lot of his sermons that haven't been translated. You can maybe translate those. And something in me went, oh, that could be fun. So <laughs> who says that, right? But that was my... And so what was so fun about it was the fact that I was also reading the Bible through with these commentaries uh, that one of them I just found somewhere. And the reason I was reading the Bible through during graduate school, in fact, I thought I'm going to flunk out of graduate school because, you know, to flunk out of graduate school means you make some B's or something really bizarre. Uh, they might not want you to hang around. But I was reading the Bible and these commentaries so much because I was brought up in the evangelical tradition, Southern Baptist. And women weren't really equal partners during the church services. The women were in the nursery. And there was a lot of shouting from pulpits and a lot of hellfire and damnation that really scared me tremendously. I, I didn't need that. I really needed myself to be affirmed. And I wanted to know, what did the Bible, I, I was getting enough of an awareness to think, what did, the, you know, what did the Bible really say? And so with these commentaries, they actually had these scholars who could sort of bridge the gap and they would say, this word comes from the, you know, this, and they would give you what the word, sort of etymologies of words and the history. And I really remember thinking, wow, girl, you're doing really great on the Bible study, but that's not, not really getting your homework done. But I knew that I had to do it to feed my soul. The good thing about translating Alfred of Innisham was he was a Benedictine monk from the 10th century in England. To understand him, I had to study the Bible more. And in fact, funny story, the first time that I sent off uh, when I was doing my dissertation later on the same um, man, same uh, writer, I sent off a chapter on Alfred's theology. I was working so hard and I was in England and I mailed it to my major professor who was, it was really a genius. I, I started to say is because he still seems so with me, John Aljo. And he sent back, you know, cause that was back in the day when you mailed stuff, you didn't email it. Literally, you got an envelope, you. You wrote airmail on it. You paid an exorbitant amount of money. And he wrote back and said, Dear Miss Acevedo, I can tell you've worked, and I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I can tell you've worked really hard on this chapter, but you have viewed Alfred's theology through a Protestant filter. Please redo. And that was when I understood that I was still holding on to that childhood um, perspective. And the monastic mindset, so Carl, to answer your question, that's one reason the monastic mindset has felt so gentle to me and so real because it emphasizes silence and it emphasizes the way words can be silent, like the logos, you know, some words are very silent. They embody the silence. So 
I translated Alfridge. And I had no idea if I was doing it right, but John Aljo kept saying, uh, didn't have much to say about it, which meant, you know, good. And then people on my committee seemed to uh, like it. So I thought, that's all right. And I remember one of the professors asking, how did you do your translation? And I remember thinking, I don't know. And I said, well, I just did a lot of passes through. And that's when I realized that was a good thing to do, to make a lot of passes. And I've remained doing that. But all of these people that you mentioned, Carl, after Alfridge, they've come to me either because somebody suggested it, like Lil Copan uh, at Broadleaf, who is, you know, an, an as I know you all know, an amazing person, an editor, an artist, or it is that the spirit has kept pulling at me in a way. So like with the cloud of unknowing, I got a snippet of it in graduate school and forgot about it in my conscious mind. And on down through the years, I remember thinking, what was that book? I couldn't even remember the title. And, and when I, in graduate school, the way I met the women mystics was in an anthology. I don't even remember which one. I just remember there were these women talking about blood and God as lover and friend and all this scandalous stuff for, a, for my upbringing. And they, made, and they were so down to earth and they were so loving and sane. And I wanted to know the God they knew. I didn't know that I did already. I just didn't have the language for it. So when I finished one book that Lil had suggested, I felt this pull to go back and find that book, whatever it was. I couldn't even remember what it was. And it was the cloud of unknowing. And it was just pulling me. And I think, to be honest with you, the reason I was pulled to it was I was looking for ways to be healed. And the cloud of unknowing was a real meditative experience in translating it. And the same was true with Hildegard. And the reason I did Hildegard was because my favorite teacher in college loved Hildegard. So it's all been either because a community or because an editor suggested or the spirit pulled me in that direction. And I don't think I'm special in this. I think everybody has these pulls of the spirit and I think I just feel fortunate to have heard it because I mean, I could have missed it too, being a human being. So I'm just glad that the spirit pulled me towards the cloud because the cloud was the one that really made a huge difference. It translated me, it changed me. It was a truly psychological experience. I mean, I didn't realize it as much at the time, but it was kind of like those extended release medicines, you know, like you, take it and it lasts for it was kind of like I translated it and that was a very healing experience but really the healing and the change to my mindset came like a extended release extended release so I'm very thankful for these people who invested their time in silence like Benedict and Benedict was just I was asked would you want to do a book on Benedict and I'm like oh yeah that sounds fun <laughs> so but it's not been a definitely not been a grand my life isn't organized enough to be there to be a grand plan i really make it up as i go and i'm really thankful to have been able to spend time with these 
to, to become friends with them, all of these people. Carmen, do you ever experience your work in translating as an investment in silence and as a contemplative practice? I do. Wow, that's such a perceptive question, Cassidy. I'm, I'm struck that in, in a way it's it, you're working alongside these greats in a way the work is parallel. I, I'm wondering, or if you experience it as parallel rather. Well, you're helping me understand it better by asking such a perceptive question in such an articulate way. So yes, I don't approach it. It looks very mundane. If you could see it, the environment around it isn't always, uh, I mean, you know, there's messiness, <laughs> but I don't sit down and light a candle. I'm sure some people do that and that works. I often think of Toni Morrison, how she said she would get up and she had her little yellow pad and her pens, uh, pencils, excuse me. And she would sit and have like a cup of coffee. And as the sun rose up, there was this moment. So I, I really relate to that I didn't have a can. I don't have candles. I don't have, I mean, I do have a, a bowl. I like to play some, but I don't have a ritual. The ritual is to get up <laughs> and to be like, okay. And often when I get up, I'm very scared. You know, being scared is a, is a part of my life that I live with and use as my fuel, as Pema Chodron might say, you know, it's part of my practice and I get up and when I was doing like Brother Lawrence or when I was doing the Cloud of Unknowing, those are the two big ones that I remember. For Brother Lawrence, I would go upstairs because that's when I was working upstairs. And there was a window to my right and the sun would come up because I do tend to get up when I'm working on something at four or four thirty. It just happens. I've never been, you know, I wouldn't get if if we were giving grades for sleep, I would never get an A plus in sleep, but I work at it, but it's just. I didn't get that gene for good sleep. I think it's important though, and I do work at it. And when I was doing the cloud of unknowing, it was also on the second floor. I would go up to the second floor. We had a little room there, like a guest bedroom. And there was a window I could look out of on my left and see the trees and everything. But I would just get up and sit in front of the computer. And then the one ritual I do have is, I don't always remember, but I will often say, hey, it's me. I really don't know how to do this. Would you show me? So a very short thing. I've often said that walking to class too. Hey, it's me. I'm scared sometimes, especially if you're walking to class and you have that feeling that uh, the kids are really nice and everything, but your ego has this feeling that you're walking to a lion's den, you know, and you're like, Hey, I'm scared. Help me know how to communicate with these students who are getting further and further away from me in age, you know? Um, they stay the same age, but I don't. And then I start and I have so, I didn't realize until I was preparing for this, for our conversation, I didn't realize how much time I'd spent translating. I was thinking, I read somewhere the other day that most people sleep 30 to 40, 30 years of their life, 20 years, something. It was a big chunk of years that you sleep. And I was thinking, I think my sleep is probably um, not that much, but I think my translating is like maybe 10, 15 years of my life. And I didn't intend that. I had other ideas. <laughs> I was going to write 
other things or different things. And maybe I still will. That's not the, but I, I find that I meet stillness in the translating and I meet these people's souls. You know how different people talk about different contemplatives, how when people die, they don't really go anywhere. They're still here. I feel that. My friend Sophie Bushbeck died in 1992, and I feel always that she's still with me. And when you're translating, I think Jhumpa Lahiri says in translating myself and others that that, uh, translating is the most intimate, most active form of reading you can do. And what is reading but listening? And what is listening but communing? And what is communing but being alive? And so to me, when I'm translating, Brother Lawrence is alive. I don't think of it that way, but I experience it that way. And the same with the cloud of unknowing, with the anonymous. And so also to look for just a moment at Carl's question again, all of these people that I've been fortunate to hang out with, they all share this love of silence and they know how to stabilize it in their lives. They know how to establish the habits where we can touch the silence, let go of enough of our ego stuff or worries or thoughts and commune with the silence. But at the same time, they are all such unique individuals. If you put me in a room with Brother Lawrence and the Clouds Anonymous, and Hildegard, and even if you took away any, like I couldn't see them, I could just feel their presences. They all had personality. I could definitely pick out who was who with, without any doubt. But yes, because the other thing is, you know how we talk about the ancestors? I need this community around me, not just of people today who are interested in this, but I need this community of those who are no longer alive in the body, so to speak, the physical body, but to be able to commune with them. And you can do that, I think, reading a book also, but there's something about translating where you take their words into you and it really is like a communion service, like where you have the wafer on your tongue, but instead you have the word. So like amour, like seeing Brother Lawrence's amour so often, and it becomes a part of my supper like you know the um lord's supper it becomes really a part of my communion so you're all that just to say you are absolutely right and i've never thought of putting it that way cassidy so thank you for asking that thank you for also in your answer honoring the the ritual of getting up because i think that for those of us including myself who deal with any kind of mental health issues or depression or anxiety, that, that is to be honored. That, that is something, getting up. Can I tack on one thing that that reminded me of? Yeah. That, so one of the things that Father Thomas Keating talks about, and I know also Dr. James Finley is, and others, many others, is how sometimes when one is practicing contemplation in a sense of sitting and having maybe 20 minutes a couple of times a day or however one is doing it, whether it's centering prayer or some other 
form of meditation. Father Thomas King spends a lot of time on this, talking about how sometimes it brings up things and that it's really wise to see a therapist. And I have been very helped, you know, brings up stuff from the unconscious, brings up past trauma that is still resonant in us. And one of the things I really respect about Jim Finley's work is how he's taking the contemplative tradition and seeing how that works also with therapy to heal trauma. And so one of the things I'm really grateful for was and has been the opportunity to be in therapy. And one of the things I'm really thankful for, for Generation Z, the ones I teach mostly now um, at the university, is that they're like, I'm in therapy. I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, because I was raised that if you were having a tough time, then you weren't, and maybe nobody ever quite said this, but sometimes they did, but it was kind of an understanding that you weren't praying enough, or you weren't reading your Bible enough, or you just weren't, weren't holy enough, weren't good enough. We're all human, and having the help of a therapist I remember I went to uh, Scotts Valley once, you know, in Arizona to get, do a lead a retreat there. And it was a retreat of counselors, which made me feel, oh, so why am I here giving, you know, leading this retreat? And a really cataclysmic event happened that weekend. I, I won't, I bring up what, but it was a shooting. And I remember all of the therapists saying, we're in therapy too, you know. And I was like, right. So, one of the things I want to honor in your comment, Cassidy, is the fact that when we are trying to heal and be more, when we're trying to let love be more in control of our life than our brokenness, then I find all of the tools at our disposal and all of the resources that we may be able to access are good things. So like therapy and community of other sorts. So I'm, I appreciate that you brought that up because that to me is very, very important. And as a teacher, I see this in students more and more, the stresses, the mental uh, wellness struggles. Yeah, amen. And thank you for naming the importance of that marriage between contemplative life and therapy and how that can, can be such a impactful way to, to help us grow and heal. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. I also deeply appreciate that connection to 
the word mundane is sticking with me. You're like, I don't have a ritual. I just have this. I just, you know, I just go upstairs or I just get up or I just whatever. And, and this conversation here furthering with therapy, I think it's really important. And again, I'm trying to get comfortable with the idea of myself of, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I spend so much time in academic realm that I'm supposed to know things. And when you start to do this research of thinking and looking into stuff and you come up with, I come up with this grand theories of like, oh, this is what it was like in the past. And this is what it's like now. And I don't know. I don't know what it was like in the past. I don't know what it's like now. And, but I keep wondering about, I, it keeps coming up for me. And I think it's important. I don't know what it was like in the past. I assume maybe it was different, <laughs> but there's something about our culture and this cultural moment that we've grown to a place where I think it is important for us to make these connections. Some of these things have been broken away um, of the mundane, the living, the therapeutic, all that kind of stuff needs to be seen as something intrinsically important, that we are all contemplatives and that you don't have to sit down and make some rigorous ritual of lighting a candle and chanting you know, and spending five times in a circle and saying magic words before you start your practice. The mundane is the practice. It is the practice of the mundane. And that would mean get up today, brush your teeth, do what you need to do, go to therapy, do your translation, be yourself. And, and I try so much. I notice that now with my students too. COVID really brought this out, but even before COVID, I was noticing more and more, and as time goes on, I've been teaching long enough that the students I remember from 10, 15 years ago are no longer here. They're very different. And the brokenness and the pain I see in my students, and they're trying so hard to just be students, just get the degree so I can go get a job or whatever, and, and they can't be. They, they try so hard, but they can't be. And so for us to give the space where we can just say to people, look, you are a contemplative. Thinking is contemplation. There is a contemplative piece. Being present with your cat is being contemplative. Hanging with the trees is being a con There are moments of silence here all over, and let's not ignore those. Let's call them out. Let's notice them. Because I'm still, I wrote down, and it's just going to spend all this time, Carmen, I thank you for this, the gift you gave to me today. I'm thinking about it is in the, it is in the the, the brokenness and the pain and in, in the destruction that the positive aspect of healing and love and silence comes forward, and that I don't have to run away from my brokenness. That that it's it's okay. It doesn't feel okay and it hurts, but it's okay. And there in that in that space, something else can be birthed. That's just powerful to me. And I think it's I, th I think it's so simple and almost trite to be like, just get up today. You know, what are you supposed to just do? Just do your thing. And on one level with a certain kind of consciousness, that means you can skip right over it. But with another kind of awareness, just getting up today is the most profound thing. And it's it's both at the same time and neither. And, and, and everything else, like uh, more than I can know. So, so I really appreciate that. And I'm kind of curious because I'd like us to shift into your book a little bit. I'm kind of curious, what, what is the gift for Brother Lawrence for us? What did Brother Lawrence offer you? 
And what are you trying to offer to the world through this book? What does Brother Lawrence have to say to us? First, I want to say that is, I hear you. What you just said was beautiful. I hear you for the students. I think I heard Barbara Brown Taylor once say, you only have to get up one more time, then you fall down. But that was beautifully said, Kevin. Thank you for that. Brother Lawrence is authentic. What he gave me was three months of calmness and more. But I want to look at those first three particularly because it was in April, May, June, July. Actually, it's more than three. But I just remember this sort of like a cocoon of 2020. This was the first summer of the pandemic. And Lil Copan said, uh, want to meet and talk books? We did. And at the very end, she said, uh, or you could maybe look at Brother Lawrence to translate. And something went off in me. Something lit up. And spending time with him, because I wasn't sure will his theology be healthy enough for me to have that intimate experience with in translation. So I started with his letters and his, well, actually his spiritual maxims and then his letters that he wrote, his journal. And I just love him. He's kind. He was living in 17th century France during a century very like our own, had King Louis XIV, that had authoritarianism, it had inequities, it had plagues, it had climate crises, it had a little ice age, it had famine and poverty and collective deaths because of all these things and have very rigid social structure. And Brother Lawrence was truly, and I say this in the vernacular of the time, was a, and I put it in air quotes, a nobody in that system. He had no formal education. He went off to war at 18 or so to the 30 years war, likely because it would have given him a bit of a stipend and some structure. And he was a prisoner of war for a while, and then he was injured in his leg and limped for the last 50 years of his life, except for the last two when he was unable to walk. So in that society, you know, you had the clergy, that was one estate, you had the nobleman, that was another estate, then you had the third estate, he was in third place, and he was kind. I really I just find hanging out with kind people is the whole thing, you know, and he was so kind and he was not arrogant in any way. He was just so pleasant to be with translating and to heal. And so I think the 30 years war, I hate to say it, uh, but the war on Ukraine and the 30 years war and other wars too, but remind me a lot of each other because the Ukrainian war has the horrific war crimes and the 30 years war did too. So I don't know what this young teenager, he was called um, Nicolas Hermont. So like we would say Nicholas Herman, but Nicolas Hermont, or I used to think of him, Nick, I'd turn up at the computer and go, Hey, Nick. And we don't know what he participated in. We don't know what he saw. We don't know a lot of things. I mean, we will, we will never know, 
But we can imagine that the Thirty Years' War would have been an experience that could give someone complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And when I got into the granular words that he uses, Brother Lawrence, to describe his experience in the war, you know, he said he calls it a horror, and he talks about the disorders of his youth. I mean, that could be anything, but we do see that he seemed to have had much psychological pain from it in addition to so the limping that he had the rest of his life as a disabled veteran was indicative was like symbolic of the pain he had inside his self and he had and he he tried a lot of things and failed at him who doesn't relate to that i worked at a big box store um, not that that's a failure but what i mean is it was hard he did things like he was a valet he uh, didn't didn't succeed at that. He was a um, tried to be a hermit and he didn't succeed at that. And then he had an, an uncle who was a lay brother in the Discalced Carmelite order. So eventually he decided to do that. So he had no grand plan. He was just bopping along and he was able to even during the first 10 years in the monastery in Paris, because that's where he was, he had a dark night of the soul. And even then he was able to develop this prayer, this practice of the presence that he called it, very much based on Teresa of Avila and Juan de la Cruz, John of the Cross, of pausing and returning to love. And he did it so often that he ended up having the last 40 years of his life being unbroken peace, whether he was working in the kitchen, which he disliked. And it's interesting to me, nobody before has really noticed that he really disliked. He says he had a natural aversion to working in the kitchen. Nobody's quite noticed that, but I've worked in the kitchen a lot. And I know sometimes you just, I mean, I've come to where I mostly, you know, enjoy it. But when I was younger, I was like, oh, and I have to do, but he was cooking for a restaurant of a hundred brothers and he was assigned to that he didn't like it but he learned to do this mini dialogue with love or god or however one thinks of this mystery every time he was cutting carrots he would return to love he might say oh i've got to make the soup i'm not sure i know how to do it or something or he might say i'm really grateful to be able to see today or i'm really frustrated with that brother over there who seems to be annoying you know, and he worked in the kitchen, then he was the sandal repairer, but he came up with this very simple practice of the presence where he just returned to love in his mind and developed this deep abiding calm. And so, Kevin, at the very bottom of the book, what I found on every page was love, love, love. That's also the answer to Carl's good question. All of the people I've translated, all they're ever about is love. Love, 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 agape, they keep coming back to love. And in that is the calm. So re, so translating Brother Lawrence, I got to spend time with someone who's calm. You, you know how it is when you meet someone who's very calm and you just, they, their soul imprints on you somehow and you walk away. And if you're like me, the first thoughts are, ooh, I said this, that was wrong. Or I'm not like that. But then when you realize they're actually kind and they're not judging you, that's you judging you, then you realize I could have more of that calm like them too. 
is for everybody. It's not just for that person. They're not a guru. It's for everybody. And Brother Lawrence has that ability down through the centuries for 300 years for us to spend time with him and come away going, that calm, I, I want more. He, he holds space for a huge amount of calm. And he did it in days not unlike our own. So that's the thing for me that I came away with. And the other thing is he has a lot of feminine energy in his theology. So he talks about prayer as being nursing God's breast. And that was a very not unusual image for his day and his circles. So, and he, and he also, at one point he's writing someone and he says, you know, often I turn to God and say, look, I've really messed up and I'm sorry and I need forgiveness. And he says that God sets the table. It sounds like that Herbert, uh, George Herbert poem, that love three, I think it is or something. And he says, God sets the table and serves me with his own hands and doesn't even bring up what I did wrong and doesn't talk about my forgiveness, just does the mundane thing, Kevin, to bring up that, it's a favorite word of mine too, does the mundane thing of doing the feminine thing of serving, of serving him. Brother Lawrence. So he is, he, and the other thing is, is that I don't know if y'all, I sometimes despair a bit, you know, I have no hope. I sometimes think I read the news and think, oh my. And Brother Lawrence, the more there was reason not to hope, his friend Joseph of Beaufort says, who was his first editor, the more there was reason not to hope, the more he hoped. I want to, want to have more of that. And he helps us find that, Brother Lawrence. So that's what he does. He's, he's authentic. Thanks, Carmen. So I want to build on that. And to pitch my question, I want to talk about my experience reading your translation, Practice of the Presence. And, and I'll preface it by saying that one of the things that I, I try very hard to do in my life is to be you know, radically affirming of um, queer folk, of LGBT folk. You know, on this podcast, we've interviewed at least one, maybe more than one um, non-binary persons, you know, so honoring people's preferred pronouns. Uh, you know, it's just, to, to me, that there's not even a debate there. That's just what we do. So having said that, I'm going to tell on myself now, when I read your book, I bumped up against you're using the singular they for God. And when I bumped up against it, of course, my inner dialogue was, well, you radically affirmed the singular they. You've been using the singular they, you know, myself as a writer since graduate school, and you and I are the same age. So back when God was a boy, you know, as when I first encountered the singular they, um, or my, maybe I should say when God was a girl. And so it was this wonderful journey for myself in acknowledging kind of my own transphobia, my internalized transphobia. We're always on, what is your comment, the road goes ever on, but this journey of, you know, deconstructing our internalized homophobia or transphobia, non-binary phobia or whatever, it's an ongoing journey. So, of course, you know, the good news is that the more I sat with this and the more that I breathed through it, the more I came to really value that this is part of 
this book's presentation of, of Brother Lawrence. Um, so I was just hoping you could maybe share a little bit about your journey there and maybe in your dialogue with Lil or just your own internal dialogue, how you came to uh, respond to God or to, through Brother Lawrence, seeing God's preferred pronoun being the singular they. Wow, thank you for sharing that, Carl. I really appreciate the honesty and the vividness of that story because I didn't start the translation with anything in mind. I literally started the translation and I didn't even tell Lil that uh, Copan that I was gonna be trying to translate it. She just gave me like about 30 or so ideas and just the Brother Lawrence one stuck out. And I didn't want to commit until I could see that the theology was nourishing to me. So after the first path, so I, but I did start and immediately stuck. So I have opened the digital original books in the National Library of France. And thank you to them for making those freely accessible because otherwise I couldn't have done this. And I would get up and go to the computer and there were no cars on the streets because this was during the lockdown in April of 2020. And there was a lot of bird song. And I would start to translate and then I was like, I'm not sure exactly what am I to do with this he? So my goal was to have the most engaging, you know, if, if I was going to be able to do this, if it worked out, my goal for translating is always to make the language be as dateless as possible. So in other words, hopefully it will last and but will also be very immediate. I'm always thinking of my students, you see, like what would reach my students? What would mean something to them? And also to be accurate, because I still have like what, what Kevin was saying, and I know y'all, oh, you know, I still have this sort of academic thing in me of like my professor might read it. And if my professor reads it, what would he think? Or like the time Cynthia Bourgeau, I went to a retreat at the monastery where Carl, you and I met, oh, those so many years ago. And I went there to meet Cynthia because she had graciously agreed to blurb the cloud. And I wanted to go really pay homage and do a deep bow. And so I went to one of her retreats at Carl's Monastery is the way I think of it in Conyers. And Cynthia told the whole group, you know, when I got this book, I was thinking that how can it be accurate and also engaging? But then she said she looked at the Middle English and I'm dying in the audience because I'm like, oh, and she said, and I saw that it was accurate. And she said, and then I, I thought, well, now I don't have to translate it. I mean, I don't know if she still feels that way, but I mean, maybe she'll translate it one day too. But my point is that I'm always also thinking I want it to be accurate. So I'm not, not going to just go off on a wild, uh, you know, just make something up or take great liberties. Then as I started translating, I ran into the he and I was like, oh, that doesn't really fit me. It seems so. So number one, it didn't fit me. And then number two, I'm thinking of all my students who identify in, as queer or in the LGBTQ plus community or trans. And I'm like, wow, this he, it keeps out so many people. And you know, when I was growing up, I had a hard time identifying like Roberta Bondi says, you know, at Emory uh, Emeritus, 
I had a hard time identifying with he because of difficulties with my father. And then when I did she for a while, like Juliana Norwich, I kind of fell into that. Well, that was great and everything, but it didn't quite fit either. Then I started realizing, well, it's kind of like all of those and none of those. And so I just didn't know what to do, but I did know that it just didn't quite work. I tried these, I twisted myself into knots trying to figure out how I could do this and make the pronouns more and I just couldn't. But the other thing, the other track in my mind for this is as I translated, I realized that past translations often doubled down on the masculinity of the translation that wasn't in the original. So for example, tous for all, the T-O-U-S, would be translated men. And I know the argument is that that man or men referred to everyone, but in today's world, it doesn't, you know? Um, and even when I was growing up, it didn't feel like it referred to me. So I always felt left out of the language of religion growing up. Like women, we were just there to, I wasn't sure what, what I was there for. So I noticed this sort of thing. And when I met with Lil Copan, I said, I've, I've translated it and I would like to do it. And that was a big moment for me because that's a huge commitment because even though I translated it in the first three or four months, it took another year to year and a half to translate it, translate it, to redo it. And I said, but my only difficulty, I'm disappointed. I couldn't avoid he, and she hadn't brought this up. So this wasn't part of a conversation. I was just saying, because we've been friends for a while, you know, like you would say to a friend, I just couldn't. And she went, ah, you know, like, what is she going to say to that? And, but I worked really hard for it, my, my translation to be accurate. And one of the things I did notice is that past translations often leave things out. So like if a passage doesn't quite fit with something, I'm not sure what, but a lot of passages in the past were left out. Sometimes only 15 instead of 16 letters was translated way back in time. And sometimes just different passages, like the passage on the philosopher uh, sometimes is left. And, other, and sometimes just other little passages are just left out. I'm not sure why. But there are some really naughty passages in Brother Lawrence sometimes. And so I went to bed and didn't think anything of it because, you know, I can only do what I can do. <laughs> and I woke up the next morning and I at least had made it very accurate. And, and I was hoping to make it more readable because one thing i will say is that brother lawrence uses sentences that are Faulknerian. they like go on for a while and so does joseph of beaufort and i wanted to make it readable you know it's like that clauses lots of them and so i woke up the next morning and i got up and i went upstairs and i sat down in front of the computer and they just came up I hadn't thought about it or anything. It just came up from my subconscious and I thought I could use they. Now, this isn't a decree from Carmen. <laughs> this, doesn't, this doesn't mean anything beyond the fact that this worked. I thought I can be more comfortable with this translation. It gives me, my soul, room to breathe in this translation. And secondly, it's inviting to all the students I have, all the friends I have, relatives who that would be inviting too. And so I had a real piece about it, but the, th the thing is when you make a pronoun change, you don't just do a global search and replace, you know? So, so that took 
many, many, many months of working on that. And the other thing that complicates it is um, I talked with different people in um, the LGBTQ plus community on do I use they, them, theirs, or they themselves, theirs, and it was like they themselves would be good. So every time I put in themselves, Microsoft changed it to themselves, which was like other themselves, which didn't refer. And you start noticing how important pronouns are. And, and I would start to notice that the they, does that refer to the books? Does that refer to God? Like you start noticing how there's confusion. But the interesting thing, when God is he, everybody understands that the he is God and not referring to Joseph or that other thing. So I think it's good that it caused me to enter into a, a new space and it gave more room. But it definitely was sort of just grew up out of this, was given to me out of the spirit. And I'm really, I'm really thankful for it. Uh, Cynthia Bourgeau said in one thing somewhere that she enjoyed reading it and seeing how I'd taken some risks. And I was like, oh, is that a risk? I hadn't realized that because really it just came up and it just was what helped me to breathe. But I must tell you, I'm a teacher and Generation Z, I have so many students who are in this space of of what society presents as difference and marginalization and Jesus didn't marginalize anyone not not the Jesus I've read of and not the Jesus I've met so that's how that's how that happened Carl and I'm just so I will I will think about your story for some time to come because that's a really special story thank you for sharing it well thank you for um, for taking the risk and really opening that up. I remember, and it was probably when I read Julian of Norwich, because I, I read Julian of Norwich in grad school, but I remember how much that opened up for me, the, you know, the space to meet God as mother and, and to really kind of bring that into my faith. And so you've just, you've given me another gift, you and Brother Lawrence together have given me another gift. And, and again, like you thinking of my friends and loved ones who are queer, who are uh, non-binary or transgender, what a gift you've given them as well. Can I tag on to that to say, I'm really pleased to hear that because one of the things that also made me think of this is that Brother Lawrence is Trinitarian in a lived theology kind of way. So I thought if he could come forward to today, he might actually think this was a cool idea because he really is very Trinitarian, not in a talk about it way, but in a live with God, the parent, God as, you know, Jesus and God as spirit. So it did, it also fit with that sort of Trinitarian lived theology. So thank you, Carl. Yeah, and thank you, Carmen, for that, that important work for all of us. As a queer person myself, it's, also really beautiful to hear that that gave you room to breathe. I think that's really honoring of the human experience and yeah, just a really beautiful way to look at that. And also your, uh, your note on the, you can't do a global search and replace and, and spending the, taking the time to really, really do that and do it well. Um, what can I say? That reminds yeah. me, I'm so glad you shared that aspect, Cassidy, of what it meant yeah. to you and how you know, from my experience, how it meant to me too, as a human, because when I started, instead of doing, realizing you can't do a global search and replace, I started realizing this could be a teaching 
moment so that I could, and, and, you know, I had readers to help me once I'd done it to see if anything caught. Okay. And then I made a few revisions, but I thought for people who are older in my life, who may be reading this, I could help them see how we use this, this uh, pronoun. And so I tried to make it clear and sort of, sort of like a manual almost too, as a sort of a side thing was part of my, my thought process, just so we can have more like gentler, more like kinder conversations with each other. I, I imagine you run into this. I certainly run into this living in the South is that people will say to me, the singular they is bad grammar or it's bad English. And my response is always English is a living, breathing thing. And this is English. This is, this is English emerging to meet the moment that we find ourselves in. And so, you know, as a, as a composition teacher, I just, again, what, what I loved about it was you acknowledged that, I think, in your introduction. And then there was no fuss. It was just, it's just the way the discourse emerged. And so that, that normalization, uh, you know, of this inclusive usage of the pronoun, I just thought was beautiful. I love that you put it that way, too. Because I think of Jane Austen and Shakespeare and other people who use they is, you know, that, who, who use the singular. And I just think that the binary view of grammar is not as fun as the organic view. And the view, what did you say? How did you put it? That language is emerging and our use of it is emerging to fit the humans using it and to be kind, to kindly fit the humans using it. I'm, I'm with you on that, Carl, 100%. <laughs> Would you say that again? The binary view of grammar is not as fun as the organic, organic. view. Thank because you. Because I try to teach my students, we have a no mistakes mindset. We're about communicating, not getting it right or correctly. We're about communicating, like using language. And, and yes, there are some guidelines, but I'm with you all on the organic view of grammar and language rather than the binary view of right or wrong. And can I say, <clears throat> one of the reasons all of this came up is because Brother Lawrence does not, this is what I found that was different from some of the traditional translations. Brother Lawrence does not have a binary point of view. He does not talk about right, wrong, or even bad, good, or evil sinner saints. He talks more about stumbling and grace and friendship with God. And that to me is what I need. I mean, I'm not talking about this from an academic perspective. I'm talking about it from a, that feeds my soul and my brokenness, it heals. So Brother Lawrence is definitely a mystic in his view of the third way. He has that mystical mindset that Richard Rohr talks about that's beyond the binary. I don't even sometimes say, and this is just me for my translating language, not for others, but I sometimes don't say non-binary when I'm, you know, but I, uh, Brother Lawrence, I think of him as beyond binary because if I say non-binary, that's a word that has a binary in it. So I'll say beyond his perspective, his lived theology is beyond the binary, uh, but he is definitely, you feel you could tell Brother Lawrence anything and he would welcome you and help you. He's very accepting of, of human nature and very loving. 
this is this is glorious here. I feel like there's this is almost uh, your comment of <laughs> there's no find and replace all for pronouns or whatever. It turns into like a Zen Cohen because because really or even thinking grammar or what here's what what we're talking about is sure you need a certain set of rules and regulations in order for us to understand each other and to have a similar language that we all understand. Because if there were no rules, you know, dog means cat for me, and it means bird for you, and it means fish for them, like, no one knows what we're talking about. So we need some order. But the the issue that you've just raised is, and I think what Carl was talking about too, is that we all seem to, and I know I do, language shapes our reality. So then what happens is we start to say, well, because I say he all the time or she all the time or whatever about God, about soul, about tree, about anything, that starts to really limit. And there's and it stops, as you said, it stops relating. It stops communication. It stops me from actually seeing what arises. Now, instead of seeing what arises, I'm implementing something. I'm saying it has to be this. Get in that box. And there, that's the problem of, hey, we need a balance to have a few some rules. So we got some rules of the road. So we're all going in the same direction and no one crashes their car. OK, that's fine. But like now let's not be ridiculous because now what happens is you get comfortable with the rules of the road. And then you say to people, well, now I'm crushing you with those rules. And so then grammar becomes a crushing tool. And, and, and I just really, really appreciate this sense. Like you just said, Brother Lawrence gives us this gift and you've offered it doing the work. I was reminding, this is about communication. This is about relationship. This is about loving. The, let's stop with the binary of yes, no, right, wrong, in, out. Let's talk about something else. I remember a couple of years ago, a, a, in grad school doing some academic work and I was writing a paper and at the front, the author wrote just one phrase and I was, I was like, where, where is this? And all they wrote at the front, you know how sometimes there's acknowledgments or they put a quote of a poem or something. It was opening right before the title page. It just said right at the front and it said, not to prove, but to discover. And I thought, well, there it is. I was like, this is exactly why I want to do thinking. I don't want to prove anything. I want to discover things. I want to open up. And I really do think that there's something going on here about that, that there's these two moments. You can prove things. You can argue things. You can try to get it into the box. Or you can just open up and discover organically what, ari what arises. And I, I just appreciate that even this conversation is a discovery. You know, so I appreciate all three of us having this, all four of us, actually. If I include myself, I'll be nice to myself. I appreciate, <laughs> because talk about self-loathing and stuff, I, I'm, I'm very good at that. So um, to, to be generous to myself, I really do appreciate that. Well, Carmen, thank you for, yeah, this discussion. It's been wonderful and enlightening and opening and continues to bring me back to the silence, the creative generative silence. I'm really grateful for that. And speaking of going beyond the binary, we love poetry here and poets seem to do that quite well. So I'm wondering if you might have a poem or a poet that you might like to share with us. 
Thank you, Cassidy. I do. I Poets feed my soul. Recently, I was listening to Dante's Old South and Ashley M. Jones was being interviewed and she was a new poet for me. Everybody else has already heard of her, I'm sure. She's the youngest and the first Black Poet Laureate of Alabama. So made Poet Laureate at the age of 31. And I was thinking about how y'all talked about the silence that is harmful and how I didn't really, even though I lived in Virginia for some time and used to go to Monticello a lot, I never heard of Sally Hemings until maybe about 2018, who was um, lived from 1773 to 1835. And I will put this word in quotes uh, because one of the historical records names her as Thomas Jefferson's quote, concubine. And if you go to monticello.org and Sally Hemings or just Google those, there's a lot of good information there. But Ashley M. Jones writes, I've read several of her books now and she writes amazing poetry. And this one is called, What It Means to Say Sally Hemings. So my thought was, you know, Sally Hemings has been silenced all these years. And she wasn't even free when she died. Her children were set free because of the deal that she made with uh, Thomas Jefferson. So here's the poem. What it means to say Sally Hemings. Bright girl, Sally. Mulatto, Sally. Well-dressed Sally, Sally with the pretty hair, Sally with the Irish cotton dress, Sally with the smallpox vaccine, Sally smelling of clean white soap, Sally never farmed a day in her life, available Sally, nursemaid Sally, Sally filled with milk, Sally gone to Paris with master's daughter, Sally in the chamber with the president, Sally in the chamber with the president's brother, illiterate Sally, Capable Sally, unmarried Sally. Sally, mother of Madison, Harriet, Beverly, Eston. Sally, mother of Eston, who changed his name. Sally, mother of Eston, Hemings, Jefferson. Eston, who made cabinets. Eston, who made music. Eston, who moved to Wisconsin. Eston, whose children were Jeffersons. Eston, who died a white man. Grandmother Sally of the white Hemingses, infamous Sally, silent Sally. Sally, kept at Monticello until Jefferson's death. Sally, whose children were freed without her. So thank you for letting me speak Sally Hemings name and thank you to Ashley M. Jones for writing that beautiful poem. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So after that sober and powerful poem, I'm kind of curious, one of the questions, and I, I have a, a hint maybe, that maybe this is a nice segue, but one of the questions we always ask is about a silence hero. And you've mentioned poets a bunch of times, and I'm wondering, is, is there a poet silence hero or is there somebody else? But that's the question we always ask is, who would be your silence hero? and uh, and why? Thank you all for asking me that question. It will reverberate through me the rest of my life. Who is my silence hero? There have been many, but one I've lived with a lot my whole life is Mary Oliver. And I sing her, you know, sometimes I walk through the marsh and set her poems to music, just for me really. 
And one of my favorite, I mean, you know, she looks at prayer as attention, right? And doesn't have to be some something big and famous, she says, paying attention. Just pay attention to the iris in your yard. Like you were saying, Kevin, the mundane. And one of my favorite poems of hers is, because I always have striven uh, with my upbringing and just my temperament too, to try to be good, you know, whatever that may mean. And she has the poem, The Wild Geese. I'm not gonna do all of it, but just the first of it. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And then she brings in the community, you know, tell me your grief and I will tell you mine. And sometimes, and I guess this would be a good thing for us to end our conversation on, which has just meant the world to me. Thank you all. I watch our cat Tao sleep and I think, dear God, please make me a mystic like Tao so that I could sleep like Tao. You know, that's my goal in life, really is to sleep the way my cat does and to play the way my cat does and to eat and um, to connect with us the way Tao does. So thank you all. This podcast has meant so much to me over the years that it is an incredible honor to have been here in conversation with you, Carl and Cassidy and Kevin. Thank you all. Thank you, Carmen. This has just been uh luminous conversation and i think you know watching you know we got the video on watching kevin and Cassidy nod their heads i think we're all going to be taking away yeah. plenty to reflect on and you know and sit with so thank you definitely yeah carmen thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your work it's such a gift the way that you take the time to translate and and to add on to carl's fan fan moment i listened to the audible version years and years ago of your translation in the cloud of unknowing. And it was, it was life-changing. I, I was living in Venice beach at the time and I would stop and take notes about every, every minute with that one. So thank you so much for your work. Yeah. And thank you just for the gift of you that you, you really do every book I've held of yours and, and the conversation today you really, really do act like Tao the cat. That uh, this is a everything you do seems to be a prayer. You take it very seriously. You relate in such deep ways, and your generosity of spirit and time is was very moving today. I I don't know. I apologize that your your words moved me to tears a number of times today, and I've taken notes. I'll be thinking a lot about what you said. So, really, you just you offer in such generous ways. And I just want you to know that it's, it's very, very appreciated. And we thank you for your time and for being a listener of the podcast. It's, it's, it's actually a little embarrassing <laughs> to hear you say that, that you listen for years. I can't believe it's been years, but thank you. I loved it. I loved every moment. Thank you all for your generosity. It means a lot, feeds my soul. Thank you for your community with me and everyone out there listening. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. 
To learn more about me, please visit carlmccolman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.